Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus, His Word, and our joy in following Him. I'm Michelle Leslie. And I'm Amy Spreeman. Last week, we talked about whether Christians should take part in Mardi Gras or Fat Tuesday, Ash Wednesday, and Lent, and how those traditions are rooted in Roman Catholicism. If you missed that program, you can find it on our website, awordfitlyspoken.life. Now, in that episode, we promised that this week, we'd put some context behind what we shared about participating in any of the Catholic practices due to the theology behind behind what seems biblical, but is not. Right. So this week, we're going to take our time and we're going to cover eight different theological areas of Roman Catholicism that when we hold these teachings uh, up to the light of Scripture, and, and let me just say, we've got a lot of Scripture for you tonight. Yes. So you might want to to get your pen and your paper ready. But when we hold these teachings and practices of Catholicism up to Scripture, we run into big, deep problems. Now, we're also going to give you a brief history on how Catholicism came to be. And then later on, we're going to share how some celebrity pastors and conference speakers and authors are actually encouraging their churches to partner with the Catholic Church in unity. Yeah, that's right, unfortunately. And we also do want to take a moment right now and just acknowledge that many of you did come out of the Catholic Church, as I did. Uh, maybe you grew up in a Catholic household, or maybe you have loved ones who are Catholic right now. And I, I just want to say, we hear you. I, I actually converted to Catholicism to get married, and uh, that was 33 years ago now, and we promised to uh, you know, raise our children Catholic. That was one of the vows that we had to take at our wedding, um, and that was all before the Lord graciously opened our eyes to who he really is. So we want to address right up front that uh, tonight we are in no way Catholic bashing here at all. We are simply sharing biblical truth because our wonderful, lovely, kind Catholic family members and dear ones desperately need the one true Savior. And Michelle, this is a tough one because many Catholics believe they already know Jesus and the truth, and they're going to tell you that they believe in his virgin birth and his death for our sins and bodily resurrection. Yeah, all that good stuff. And what I've found also is that Often when you witness to Catholics and, and bring up your concerns about the unbiblical teachings and practices of Catholicism, they will often say, well, we don't really believe that. And it's it's really hard for me to understand why someone would be part of a system that they don't agree with or that they don't believe in. I always want to say, well, if you don't believe that, why are you still Catholic? Right. I used to say the same thing. Well, we don't really, you know, pray to Mary. We don't really do the things that you're saying that we do. That's not what we believe at all. You guys just don't understand us. And, uh, you know, part of the uh, attraction is that, uh, you know, if you're steeped in the belief that you need to go to Mass in order to, you know, gain eternal life, uh, if you believe that, you find the Mass very comforting because it's it's one of those things that's, uh, you know, there it is. I, I know for sure that I'm saved because. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough one because you think you know. And there are a lot of Catholic people, uh, dear ones, who do read the scripture. It's just that their eyes have not been opened yet to uh, what the Bible actually says about things like sanctification and um, justification and things like that. So uh, we, we want to be especially sensitive to that. Yes, absolutely. And and like you, I have uh, friends and loved ones who are Catholic as well. We, this is a very heavily Catholic area, as I think I mentioned on last week's episode. It's about uh, it's about half Baptist and half Catholic is what it seems like most of the time. So yeah, uh, yeah. There's there's a lot of Catholicism around here, and and uh, it's it's just really heartbreaking to see people trapped in some of the things that we're going to be talking about tonight. When we know that the truth of scripture is so much better and the truth of scripture and the truth of who Christ is, is the only thing that can set you free from your sin, from bondage to false systems and things like that. So I'm really, I'm really glad we're getting into this tonight. 
I am too, Michelle. And us as well up here in uh, Northeast Wisconsin, we've got the Green Bay Diocese right here and uh, very heavily Catholic as well. So a lot of people need to hear uh, the truth about, you know, how Roman Catholicism, the RCC, uh, is vastly, vastly different than uh, what scripture says. And so uh, we are going to start with a little history, just a little bit. We don't want to spend too much time here. Um, but you need to know that the Roman Catholic Church, or RCC, claims to be the one true church as established by Jesus and his apostles. It sees Peter as the leader of the apostles with the greatest authority. We're going to get into that a little bit more later. Uh, and it also teaches that Peter later became the first bishop of Rome. Now, for the first 280 or so years of Christian history, Christianity was actually banned by the Roman Empire, and Christians were terribly persecuted. That horrific time began to change after the uh, conversion, I'll put that in bunny ears, uh, conversion of the Roman Emperor Constantine. Now, in AD 325, Constantine called the Council of Nicaea in attempt to unify all Christians, and Catholicism became Rome's official religion after that. Uh, over the centuries, the Catholic Church made itself attractive to the idolatrous people of the Roman Empire, and it, you know, as all things, it didn't take long before it apostatized and became unrecognizable as the same faith held by the apostles and the early believers. The doctrines upheld and taught by the RCC do stand in contrast with and even in opposition to biblical Christianity. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You know, one of the most important events in the history of the Roman Catholic Church is the Council of Trent, which happened over a period of years from 1545 to 1563. So this, this council or this gathering wanted to, to counter and respond to the Protestant Reformation that was, was, uh, had taken place and, uh, or was still taking place really. And it was at this meeting that Rome ultimately anathemized or condemned the biblical doctrine of justification that, that we as Protestants hold so dear. And from that time to this, Rome has never reversed its condemnation of non-Catholics. Listen to these five declarations from the Council of Trent. Okay, here's the first one. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema. So just to put this in easier to understand language, let him be anathema is going to come at the end of each one of these uh, anathemas that we're about to read here. And it basically means let him be condemned to hell. Or another way of understanding it is if you believe this, you know, whatever this thing is that I've just said, you're not saved. So in this first anathema, Catholicism says that if you say or believe that sinners are saved by faith alone and that our own good works play no part in our salvation, you're condemned to hell. Okay. All right. Listen to this next one. If anyone says that man is absolved from his sins and justified because he firmly believes that he is absolved and justified or that no one is truly justified except him who believes himself justified, and that by this faith alone, absolution and justification are effected, let him be anathema. In other words, you're not saved just because you believe you're saved, and you believe you're saved because you placed your faith, faith alone, in Christ. If you believe that, you're condemned to hell. Catholicism teaches that only the Catholic Church can pr pronounce you saved, and they do that by witnessing your outward works of things like baptism, good deeds, etc. Okay, here's the next one. If anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also not increased before God through good works, 
but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not the cause of its increase, let him be anathema. This one's about keeping your salvation once you get it. If you believe that you don't have to do good works in order to keep your salvation, but you believe that good works are the fruit or natural overflow of your salvation, you're condemned to hell. Here's the next one. If anyone says that after the reception of the grace of justification, the guilt is so remitted and the debt of eternal punishment so blotted out to every repentant sinner that no debt of temporal punishment remains to be discharged either in this world or in purgatory before the gates of heaven can be opened, let him be anathema. All right, this one means that if you think that when God saved you, his grace blotted out all your sin, and you don't think that God is going to punish you for your sin here on earth and or in purgatory before you can go to heaven, you're condemned to hell. Okay, and then finally, here's the last one. If anyone says that the Catholic doctrine of justification as set forth by the Holy Council in the present decree derogates in some respect from the glory of God or the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ and does not rather illustrate the truth of our faith and no less the glory of God and of Christ Jesus, let him be anathema. So in other words, If you say that the way Catholicism teaches, quote unquote, salvation takes away from the glory of God or diminishes Jesus life and work instead of agreeing with the Catholic Church that their teaching on salvation is right and biblical, then you're condemned to hell. I'm really glad that you read those, Michelle. And again, ladies, um, these have never been retracted uh, in, in any way by the Roman Catholic Church. So um, they still stand. And um, we as Protestants uh, do end up, you know, in the eyes of the Catholic Church, we're not saved. We are outside. And ladies, you ought to recognize that these condemnations of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, stand in direct contradiction to Scripture and, in fact, are an attack on the gospel itself. Now, throughout this program, we're going to give you many, many Bible verses, and you can either write them down as you listen to this podcast, or uh, we've got these in our program notes on our website. So Romans 3.20, uh, Galatians 3, 1 through 3, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, and Colossians 2, uh, 13 and 14 are all really great verses to talk about in this. And I like to, the one in Galatians, Michelle, uh, 3, 1 starts out, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You know, there's all sorts of things in the Bible that that are directly in opposition to what we just heard uh, from this Council of Trent. So what we want to do next is uh, talk a little bit about the the eight things, and there are many more, by the way, but but we just want to cover the eight biggies, uh, the eight things that the Catholic Church teaches that are opposite of what God's Word teaches And for this, we're going to refer to just two sources, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the actual catechism, um, and we've got all of those reference notes in our, again, in our show notes today from which paragraphs in the official Catechism of Rome that these come from, and of course, the Bible. Okay, so the first thing we're going to tackle is salvation. What does it take to be saved in the Catholic Church to know for sure that you'll go to heaven when you die? The process of salvation, and it is a process, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, means a Catholic must have faith in Christ and the Roman Catholic Church, participate in the sacraments, take the Eucharist, that's communion, the bread and the wine, keep the commandments, perform penance, and do indulgences in order to attain, that's receive salvation, maintain or keep salvation, and regain or get it back after you lose it, salvation, as well as to reduce the punishment due to him for the sins of which he has already been forgiven. Still quoting here, the church affirms that for believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. Sacramental grace is the grace of the Holy Spirit given by Christ and proper to each sacrament. 
The Spirit heals and transforms those who receive Him by conforming them to the Son of God. The fruit of the sacramental life is that the Spirit of adoption makes the faithful partakers in the divine nature by uniting them in a living union with the only Son, the Savior. So that's what Catholicism teaches. What does biblical Christianity teach? Well, as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of man, Christ's death and resurrection provided salvation for all who would believe. Salvation is the forgiveness of sins and being saved from the wrath and condemnation of God. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. And that's in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Let me read those for you. Those are some of my favorite verses. And in my opinion, this just completely, just these two verses completely knock out Roman Catholicism altogether. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is a free gift from God to those who believe or trust in Him. And you can look for that. You can look at Romans 1.16, Romans 6.23, and Ephesians 2.8 and 9. And then we also know that salvation cannot be earned, and you can look at Romans 11.6 for that. Thank you, Michelle. Well, the second one we're going to look at is uh, something that Michelle mentioned earlier, the Eucharist. What does that mean? Well, the Catholic Church teaches uh, something about the Eucharist, uh, which is just simply means the bread given out at communion. They teach that the bread, which in most cases is a small uh, white wafer, and the juice or wine actually become the literal physical body and blood of Jesus. And the term for this is transubstantiation, also known as the real presence. Now, the Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring, quote, because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God and his Holy Council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change, the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. End quote. Now, ladies, because these elements are the presence of Christ himself, the bread and wine are actually worshipped. Here's another direct quote. We express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine by, among other ways, genuflecting or bowing deeply as a sign of adoration of the Lord. Now, ladies, it's especially important to Catholics to practice this sacrament for those who have already died, saying, and again, this is a direct quote from the Catholic Catechism, the Eucharistic sacrifice is offered for the faithful departed who have died in Christ but are not yet wholly purified, so that they may be able to enter into the light and peace of Christ. Now, they are referring here to a place called purgatory, sort of like a, a waiting room for people to finish cleansing themselves of sin before the heavenly receptionist buzzes you through the door to Jesus. And if enough people pray for you while you're in the waiting room, your wait time is significantly decreased. Now, more on purgatory a little bit later. But what what does the Bible teach or what does biblical Christianity actually say about this? Well, first, I just kind of want to address that last thing. If you are in Christ, you are indeed wholly purified and do not need anyone to worship uh, wafers or juice on your behalf after you're already in heaven. We celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion in remembrance of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ and in obedience to his words. And you can find that, of course, you, you hear this when you uh, take part in communion. Luke uh, chapter 22, verse 19 and 20, and 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verses 23 through 26. 
Jesus Christ was sacrificed only once for the forgiveness of sins of all who believe. And you can find that in Hebrews 7, 26 and 27, and a few other verses, which we're also going to put into our show notes today. Uh, there are so many ladies. The Bible is full of these. Um, and the single sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to save for all time those who are being sanctified. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross is what makes propitiation for the sins of his people. And you can read about that in Hebrews chapter 2, 17 and 1 John 2, verse 2. Now, if a man dies without Christ, there are no works that can be done either for himself in purgatory or by those still alive on earth that can gain him any entry into the light and peace of Christ. And we we know that our faith in Jesus Christ is what uh, saves us. Uh, and Jesus himself said that over and over again. And in fact, you won't find purgatory or any of these other traditions uh, located anywhere in scripture. That's absolutely true. And, you know, another thing that you won't find anywhere in Scripture is what they teach about Mary. Catholicism teaches that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was born free from original sin, you know, the sin nature that we inherited from Adam, and that she remained sinless for her entire life. Here's what the Catholic Catechism says. The most blessed Virgin Mary was, from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God, and by virtue of the merits of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. The fathers of the Eastern tradition call the Mother of God the All-Holy, or Panagea, and celebrate her as free from any stain of sin, as though fashioned by the Holy Spirit and formed as a new creature. By the grace of God, Mary remained free of every personal sin her whole life long. Catholicism also teaches the perpetual virginity of Mary in the Catechism, and this is what it says. The deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity, even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. In fact, Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but sanctified it. And so the liturgy of the church celebrates Mary as a Parthenos, the ever-virgin. And Catholicism teaches that now in heaven, Mary continues to act as a mediator for the church. Quoting again from the Catechism, This motherhood of Mary in the order of grace continues uninterruptedly from the consent which she loyally gave at the Annunciation and which she sustained without wavering beneath the cross until the eternal fulfillment of all the elect." Taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside the saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Wow. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles of Advocate, Helper, Benefactress, and Mediatrix. Wow. Wow. (laughs) So... Yeah, I noticed helper, the Holy Spirit is our helper, not Mary. And uh, we know that she's not a mediatrix either, because what does biblical Christianity teach about all this? Scripture clearly teaches that in Adam all die. That's 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty two, And that no man is righteous or without sin. That's Romans 3, 10 through 18. Uh, and the only exception to that would be Christ himself. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, 1 John 1, 8 says. And then 1 John 1, 10 goes on to say, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So Mary, just like all mankind, everybody else on the planet was a sinner because she was a human being just like you and me. Um, Scripture also indicates that the Lord Jesus had brothers and sisters, so Mary was not a perpetual virgin. The scriptures say that Joseph kept her a virgin until after she gave birth to Christ, but then she went on and had other children. And there are just a whole slew of scriptures that talk about that. And like like Amy said, we're going to have that in the show notes for you. Um, the only one who acts as a mediator between man and God is Jesus Christ, the only one. Amen. We only have one mediator. He alone is the high priest. You can find that in Hebrews 5, 5 through 6. 
and he alone offered his own blood as an acceptable sacrifice for the sins of those who would believe. And you can find that in Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10. And then just one last verse here before we move on. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And that's First Timothy 2, 5 through 6. Jesus is our only mediator. And all of these other things that Catholicism teaches about Mary, well, they're just not true. No. All right. Well, number four is uh, how the Catholic Church views the authority of Scripture. What is What does the Catholic Church say about the Bible? Well, Rome puts Scripture and their man-made traditions on the same level of equal authority. The Catechism says, quote, sacred tradition and sacred Scripture are bound closely together and communicate one with the other. For both of them, flowing out of the same divine wellspring, come together in some fashion to form one thing and move toward the same goal. As a result, the church, to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. And it goes on to say in the catechism, quote, sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the word of God, in which, as in a mirror, the pilgrim church contemplates God, the source of all her riches. Wow. Okay. So what they're saying is that all the traditions of man and scripture are the authority and you can't have one without the other and they are to be revered together. Well, what does the Bible say? Well, biblical Christianity teaches that scripture alone, sola scriptura, is the authority for all we know about the nature and character of God. The Bible supports tradition only when it affirms what God has already revealed in his word and through the teaching of the apostles. And you can find that in Second uh, Thessalonians 2.15 and 3.6, and then also 1 Corinthians 11.12. When man's tradition contradicts scripture, as many of the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church do, then it must be rejected. And you can find that in Mark 7, 8 and Colossians 2, 8. And the whole counsel of God is found in the Bible. We are not to add anything to it, of course, ladies. We know that not new revelations or traditions or voices we think we hear. And for that, we're going to go to Second uh, Timothy three fifteen through 17. And these are among uh, some of my favorite verses. And it says, and how this is Second uh, Timothy three fifteen, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so those are just a few of the verses that uh, you can go to. Again, we'll have links in our show notes today on that. Yeah, I guess we can see why it was so important that sola scriptura was one of the major points of the Protestant Reformation. I mean, if you know yes. your Bible, you know that these things are not biblical. I'm sure, you know, all of our listeners have all a lot of these verses just popping into their minds as we're as we're saying these things that the Catholic Church teaches. And another thing that the Catholic Church teaches that's unbiblical, unfortunately, is they teach that some people must undergo additional purification or punishment for their sins after death before being able to enter the kingdom of heaven. So the Catholic Catechism says, all who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. The church formulated her doctrine of, of faith on purgatory, especially at the councils of Florence and Trent. The tradition of the church, by reference to certain texts of scripture, speaks of a cleansing fire. And here's what it says. 
As for certain lesser faults, we must believe that before the final judgment, there is a purifying fire. He who is truth says that whoever utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will be pardoned neither in this age nor in the age to come. From this sentence, we understand that certain offenses can be forgiven in this age, but certain others in the age to come. Well, that's actually a twisting of scripture. That is not what scripture says or means. So what else does does biblical Christianity teach us about these ideas? Well, the idea that people have to atone for their own sins, whether in life or death, runs contrary to the doctrine of justification by grace alone through faith alone, and it denies the full efficacy of the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Christ Christ's sacrifice achieved the salvation of all who will believe apart from any work or merit of their own doing. Purgatory is not a scriptural concept. Scripture does speak quite clearly, however, about the two possible destinations after one's death, heaven or hell. And you can read very clearly about that in Matthew 25, 31 through 34. And then a couple of other verses that this false doctrine of purgatory contradicts are Hebrews 9, 27, which says it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 8, I'm sure a lot of us know this one, absent from the body, present with the Lord. So did you hear anything in those verses about a side trip to purgatory before you get to heaven or hell? No, you die and you go straight to heaven or hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. So this idea that people have to atone for their own sins, you know, that God's going to further punish them here on earth or further punish them in purgatory is just completely unbiblical. It denies Jesus finished work on the cross in his death, burial and resurrection. Yeah, Michelle, I don't know if you've ever been to a Catholic uh, funeral at all. Uh, you may have. Um, I've been to many and uh, there's this part at is sometimes it happens in the uh, church after the funeral as the casket is being escorted out and sometimes more often it happens right at the graveside uh, service where uh, the the priest will ask people to bow their heads and pray uh, for the their loved one uh, out of purgatory and into heaven. And so, yeah, in fact, uh, a dear friend of ours, uh, his dad passed away and uh, we uh, listened as the priest encouraged uh, the people gathered at the cemetery to uh, uh, pray John into heaven. And it was really super hard to hear. Uh, it, it did open up a, a very good conversation topic for us uh, later on that afternoon when we were with uh, his son. So, um, and he Agreed that that just wasn't right. That that uh, so I it, it does open up conversations, but again, without the lie in the first place, it's so much easier uh, if if we would just stick to truth and not these traditions. Well, you know, the next one uh, we're on number six here, I believe, indulgences, and this is kind of the the ugly stepsister of uh, purgatory. What in the world is an indulgence? If if you've not heard that word before, an indulgence is basically a payment that a human makes to help ease the punishment of sin, most often for people who have already died. Like I said, it goes hand in hand with the idea of purgatory. Now, years and years and years ago, you used to be able to purchase or buy indulgences, but the church outlawed the sale of indulgences in 1967. But charitable uh, contributions combined with other acts can help you earn an indulgence still to this day. The return of indulgences began with Pope John Paul II, who authorized bishops to offer indulgences in the year 2000 as part of the celebration of the church's third millennium. Well, one Catholic website puts it this way, and this is from a priest. He said, quote, an indulgence involves confessing one's sins before a priest who offers absolution. But after the sins are forgiven, the side effects of the sins continue to punish the soul. Such residual effects are like the punishment that lingers after sin. Indulgences get rid of such punishment, end quote. Well, here's what the Catholic Catechism says officially about this. 
Quote, an indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the church, which, as the minister of redemption, dispenses and applies with authority the treasury of the satisfactions of Christ and the saints." End quote. That was a huge word salad. And so, but basically, and it says, here's another quote from the catechism. An indulgence removes either part or all of the temporal punishment due to sin. Indulgences may be applied to the living or the dead. Through indulgences, the faithful can obtain the remission of temporal punishment resulting from sin for themselves and also for the souls in purgatory. Oh, Michelle, none of that is biblical at all. Uh, you know, you just shake your head and say, where in the world in scripture is any of this? And what does biblical Christianity teach about this? Well, the teaching of indulgences actually negates the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. And, you know, Michelle, sufficiency is a big deal in Christianity. Christ alone has borne the punishment of sins of those who will believe, as it says in Romans 5, 1 through 9. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. I love that one, Michelle. And then the second verse I'm going to read is from Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So there you have it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's one of my favorite verses too, Amy. And, yeah. you know, as as we've been talking about this tonight, what I'm noticing, and maybe our listeners are too, over and over again, is that these false doctrines of Catholicism attack sufficiency. They attack the sufficiency of Scripture. They attack yep. the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross. They attack the sufficiency of grace and faith and, uh, you know, just pretty much everything. So um, it's it really is a foundational attack on everything that God stands for. These these doctrines are, and then another one of them is is penance. Penance is another one of these doctrines that's like that. It's a sacrament of reconciliation for sins committed after baptism, uh, and what they say about it is that it's necessary to reestablish a right relationship with God after you sin. It's it's like punish work you do in order to show God that you're really sorry and work your way back into his good graces. Here's what the catechism says. Penance is a liturgical action. The elements of the celebration are ordinarily these, a greeting and blessing from the priest, reading the word of God to illuminate the conscience and elicit contrition, and an exhortation to repentance. The confession, which acknowledges sins and makes them known to the priest, the imposition and acceptance of a penance, the priest's absolution, a prayer of thanksgiving, and praise and dismissal with the blessing of the priest. Again, not biblical. So what does biblical Christianity teach? The Bible says that even your good deeds are as filthy rags before God. It says that in Isaiah 64, 6. So the Christian can only be reconciled to God by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, and of course, there. Are, if you know your New Testament, you know that there are lots of verses that talk about that. Um, we talked more about penance on last week's episode, Mardi Gras, Ash Wednesday, and Lent. And like we said before, we're going to link that up in the show notes. But I just wanted to reiterate something Amy said on that episode while we were in the process of talking about penance. Penance is an unbiblical view of God's punishment of sin. God punishes sins in two ways. If you're an unbeliever, he punishes your sin with an eternity in hell. If you're a believer, he punished Jesus for your sin on the cross, freeing you from having to take that punishment yourself. There's no sort of in-between punishment for sin that God delegates to the church. We can't earn forgiveness or absolution for our sins through penance, and it's not the church's place to dole out punishment for our sins. 
all of that is God's place and God's place alone. And I am so thankful for that. Me too. Yes. Well, we're going to do one more here. And um, this is the eighth of the issues we're going to tackle in this podcast. There are many more, but but these are the ones that we really, uh, really want you to know about. And the eighth one is the system of popes as leaders. Now, this idea of popes is uh, built upon really a, a misinterpretation of Matthew 16, 18, which says this. I'm just going to read what scripture says first. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Okay, that's what scripture says. Now, the RCC asserts that Peter was the first pope and that all the popes after him were and are Christ's representative here on earth and that they are infallible. I'm going to read a little bit from the catechism about this. And again, uh, this is a little bit of a word salad, so bear with me here. Quote, Simon Peter holds the first place in the College of the Twelve. Jesus entrusted a unique mission to him. Through a revelation from the Father, Peter had confessed, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Our Lord then declared to him, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Christ the living stone thus assures his church built on Peter of the victory over the powers of death. Because of the faith he confessed, Peter will remain the unshakable rock of the church. His mission will be to keep his faith from every lapse and to strengthen his brothers in it. When the Pope speaks ex cathedra, he defines a doctrine regarding a faith of or morals to be held by the universal church by the divine assistance promised to him in blessed Peter is processed of that infallibility with which the divine redeemer willed that his church should be endowed in defining doctrine regarding faith or morals, and that therefore such definitions of the Roman pontiff are of themselves and not from the consent of the church irreformable. Okay, all that to say is that the church is built on Peter and not Christ. That's what this is saying about the popes. Now, biblical Christianity, of course, says something entirely different. It says that the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Christ was accomplished in full so that man would no longer require another mortal mediator between himself and God. Sinful man through Jesus Christ alone can now approach the throne of God, as it says in Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Here's what it says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, Michelle, that whole idea of the popes being infallible and that Peter is the one who reigned victorious, uh, it is such a slap in the face to everything that our Lord is and what he stands for. It really is. And really, all of these things that we've talked about tonight are uh, the views of Mary, the views of purgatory, all of this stuff is, you know, when we say that that 
Catholicism isn't Christianity, people think we're crazy or they, they think we're just being mean or hateful mean, or right. something. But because we love Christ and we trust him and we know that he is all sufficient for our salvation, that his word is all sufficient to tell us everything that we need to know for life and godliness, that is what compels us to say this stands in the face of Christianity and and just stands against it. You know, it's, it's yeah. completely against what scripture teaches. And you must, if you want to know Christ, you must at some point come out of this false system. We're, we're not saying that uh, people can't get saved while they're in Catholicism. People certainly can. People get saved when they're in Mormonism and Hinduism and atheism and every other kind of ism. But they don't stay in those things. They come out of them if they've been truly saved. So, um, so we need to remember these things and, and, uh, these, you know, these eight areas that we've talked about tonight, there are more, more than just these eight areas that are unbiblical, but these are the, the eight main areas of theology that are in, like I said, direct opposition to biblical Christianity as breathed out by God himself in the canon of scripture. And we know that we are not to be in unity in any way with any movement so opposed to God's word as the Roman church is. And, and again, we use the term church loosely here because when you, when you stand in complete opposition to God's word and to Christ's finished work on the cross, you are not a church. I'm sorry, but you're not. And that is why I call it Catholicism or Catholic organization or something like that. It's not a church. Um, but you know, this is why it's so crucial to know your Bible and to study church history. Remember, during the Protestant Reformation, the reformers were forced to depart from Roman Catholicism in order to unite with Christ. And 500 years later, we cannot come together with the Catholics. Anyone who desires true salvation in Jesus Christ must break from Roman Catholicism. And up until recently, we knew this. I mean, yes, Protestants partnering with Catholicism was absolutely unheard of. Yeah, that's right, Michelle. However, <laughs> over the past decade or so, we have seen a tragic trend in which celebrity pastors have, you know, joined hand in hand with Rome in an unholy alliance, all in the name of unity. Um, and, and so I'm going to list just a couple of them going back just a few years, but it's been going on a long time. In uh, 2015, the head of the International House of Prayer, or IHOP, uh, his name is Mike Bickle, uh, he invited his former staff director who uh, converted to Catholicism five years earlier, and his name was Keith Major, to offer a Catholic track at IHOP's One Thing Conference. This was a huge conference, big, lot of celebrities were there. Uh, attended by many, many youth, especially Pastor uh, Francis Chan. You may know that name. He was also a conference leader there. And they all taught thousands of young people, uh, Catholic youth and Protestant youth together, which I have no problem if if the true gospel is being proclaimed. But uh, Bickle, who himself is a false teacher, and I'll add some links in the show notes, said this, Quote, we have so much to learn from all over the body of Christ. Catholics, charismatics, non-charismatics, denominations, anyone who loves Jesus. That's why we're hosting an ecumenical track, or actually, you're the one leading it. And so I appreciate you doing that, because if you love Jesus and the Word of God, man, we're going on the same direction before the Lord, and we love that. So again, tens of thousands of people are listening to this, and uh, no doubt are being influenced by that. And then that same year in 2015, Pastor Rick Warren of Saddleback Church and uh, the Purpose Driven Life fame visited the Vatican in Rome and did a commercial with Pope Francis saying this, quote, if you love Jesus, we're on the same team. And he says that he fully supports the book and the movement called Catholics Come Home. Okay. And then in 2016, just a year later, false teacher Lou Engel, he's the founder of the uh, Azusa Now the Call movement, kissed the feet 
this was actually lots of pictures online of this kissed the feet of a Roman Catholic leader live on stage in front of a cheering audience of a hundred thousand people packed into the LA Coliseum. Uh, there's a video out there of this and you can find it. I've got an article that has it in there. The video shows the two throwing themselves to the floor in prostrate humility, each proclaiming that Christians and Catholics must unite in the name of unity. The kiss uh, actually started with Matteo Calisi, who's the Roman Catholic leader appointed by Pope Benedict, who founded United in Christ and uh, telling the audience that divisions between Christians and Catholics is a diabolical sin, and that Jesus doesn't care that Christians and Catholics disagree on biblical doctrine. And, you know, Michelle, he did what many Christians find unthinkable. And one more example, and there are hundreds of these, Pope Francis famously recorded a televised message for Kenneth Copeland saying that Catholics and Charismatics must reunite uh, Copeland, he's a, a heretical name it and claim it leader. Uh, he played this message at his church and said, quote, heaven is thrilled over this. You know, what's also so thrilling to me when we went into the ministry 47 years ago, this was impossible. Now, his good friend, Anglican uh, Tony Palmer, uh, who was working with the Pope to bring back the so-called lost brethren to the mother church and who has uh, since passed away. He was killed like a year later after this. But he spoke at Kenneth Copeland's church uh, that day that this was televised, and he told the crowd that the Reformation was over. In other words, the work that the Reformers did to break away from the Roman Catholic Church 500 years ago was no longer needed. You know, if that's truly the case, then those who have suffered in the past for standing for truth did so in vain. And I have all these articles, plus many more in our program notes today, ladies. So along with a uh, white paper on Roman Catholicism that outlines everything we talked about here today. Mm, Semper Reformanda, (laughs) always reforming. The Reformation's not over. We just, we're always reforming and trying to get more biblical and holier and closer to Christ. That's, that's what we're all about as Christians and as the church. Well, we want to let you know that we have a special guest joining us for next week's episode. So you might be familiar with Mike Gendron. He's an evangelist and an apologist who ministers to Catholics and brings them the truth of the gospel. His ministry, which is called Proclaiming the Gospel, is a must bookmark for all the the wonderful resources that you'll want to check out if you have loved ones that you're trying to reach in the Catholic religion. Mike is going to be here to answer questions about how to do that and we could not be more excited. Yes. <laughs> we put a, his website address along with a host of other links and resources in our show notes today. So be sure and check those out. Yes, and you can find those on our website, a wordfitlyspoken.life. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to hear all of our episodes on demand. And until next time, be in the word, know the one true God, and walk worthy.